You're listening to Level Up with Melissa Zalouf from Iron Source. So welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Level Up, the podcast for people who love making, growing, and of course, playing mobile games. I'm Melissa Zalouf, and joining me on today's episode is Nate Morgan, who is Global Gaming Strategy Lead at Facebook Audience Network. Nate, thank you very much for being on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So um, what we like to do at the beginning of, of podcasts is ask people to share their personal journey uh, in gaming. Sometimes I ask people if they grew up a gamer. Um, so you can tell me that if you'd like. But t- tell us a little bit about how you, um, uh, what your journey has been like in the game industry and how you ended up at Facebook Audience Network. Yeah, so absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's great to be here. I, I did grow up a gamer. Um, I My first game console was a, a hand-me-down Atari 2600 um, and then spent kind of the majority of my childhood on the on the, the original NES, Sega Genesis, that whole era. So I'm, I'm definitely revealing my, my age uh, mm-hmm. to the group. I'm an old, old man over here. Um, mm-hmm. Spent like the first half of my career in enterprise software um, right around 2008, 2007, Great Recession era. A lot of that space where I was working, which just happened to be in uh, construction and uh, design, architectural design was getting pretty massively disrupted. Um, and right around the same time, there was a lot happening in in free-to-play gaming, at least online, with the emergence of social media, companies like Zynga, um, et cetera. And I started to follow that space really closely and gained a lot of interest. Um, it was through like pure serendipity that I ended up getting into the games industry. Um, a f- person named Chris Plummer, who mm-hmm. was a, an ex- executive producer at EA in LA, moved in next door to me and my family in Lafayette, California, in the East Bay. This is when I was still in enterprise software. And he had moved to the Bay Area in 2008. This is just after the iPhone had been launched. Um, Before the iOS, like developer SDK, had been released Mm -hmm. to join a company called NGMoCo, which had been just recently funded by the iFund, which was a joint venture between Kleiner Perkins and Apple to fund iOS specific developers. He and I met, we became friends. A little while later, I met the founders, <clears throat> somehow convinced them to let me join. And um, I joined with the express purpose of, of helping build the, the ad business at a very, very early f- mobile free-to-play gaming company. Mm. Wow. Then, then what happened? <laughs> then what happened? The, the <laughs> um, well, it was a really interesting time. I think that um, we we were learning a lot. We were we were pioneering the early days of free to play. In fact, the um, when right after I joined, right before I joined, the company, a, a, like a lot of mobile game developers back then, had originally tried to. Um, to sell premium games, like these, the founders all came from EA. Um, mm. They decided, look, we're gonna, we're just gonna sell, we're gonna build these games, we're gonna sell them for nine ninety nine on the App Store, and everybody's gonna come 
and and buy them and download them um and you know it just didn't didn't work that way um people it's difficult for consumers to learn new habits on new platforms i think the the movies industry is kind of going through that right now like disney's trying to release major motion pictures on disney plus and figuring out how do you price that how do you how do you get consumers who are used to going and spending their time in a movie theater and dropping a hundred bucks to take their family easily without even thinking about it, dropping a hundred bucks to go and take their family um, of four or five, which is what I say easily for me, this is what I do. So I don't want to presume it's easy for everybody. But the point is that you spend that money in that context at a movie theater. And then Disney wants you to spend $30 over here on Disney plus, And that can be really difficult to get a consumer to make that choice and that decision. So that's what NG Mocha was wrestling with. That's what um, mobile gaming in the early days was wrestling with. So we took our cue from uh, the Zingas of the world who were innovating on free to play in the West on Facebook's own platform, actually Canvas back in the early days um, of Facebook's existence, doing free to play with games like Farmville in the West. And we doubled down on that. We built um, a free to play business really just less than a year after I joined, um, we were firing on all cylinders. We had built a $10 million ads business. The IAP business was much larger than that. And we were acquired by DNA out of, Tokyo, uh, out of Japan uh, for $400 million. That was just kind of a wild, crazy time, but it was an exciting time. Um, and it just, yeah, it's a full decade ago now. Which, wow. is, which is hard to believe, but it, but it is. And a lot's happened since then. Yeah. Can I, um, can I ask a question? As a, as a gamer, how did you feel about getting your first job in gaming where the, the mission was to build out an ad business? Um, did you sort of feel, um, oh, well, that's not the part I want to do? Um, or were you sort of like, well, I actually think this is how we make games um, you know, available to mm. many, many more people. And this is how we make this business an industry bigger and and more mainstream and, and more applicable to more uh, wider demographics. It's mm, a great question. I love that question. It's it's interesting. It's a non-traditional answer probably coming from me um, because I, at the time, was a father with three young kids. Um, I was not doing a lot of gaming and because I was just, busy being a dad and being a working professional. And back then in 2008, the extent of mobile gaming or gaming on the go was playing brick breaker on your Blackberry. And it was, it was, I did, I played it a lot. I played it on, on BART on the train. Um, but it wasn't exciting. It wasn't like sitting down in front of the console, um, and, and playing Madden. Um, it was, it just, it just wasn't, but as a dad, to me, the appeal of playing games on the go, like real high quality entertainment on a smartphone was just super exciting. So for me, I was just really excited to get into the space. Um, and so to do ads as a part of that was, um, yeah, I guess at the time for me, it was like, I'm getting in the door. I don't have experience designing designing and right. making games. And so um, I was just happy to be there, so to speak. But I hear where you're coming from because, um, you know, there still is, even to this day, a bias from um, 
you know, designers or people who are making high quality entertainments, there can be a bias against running advertisements um, in games. And that's, that's something that, you know, we, we think about a lot um, at Facebook Audience Network. And we think that there's, um, there's been a ton of innovation over the last decade um, that has made it really compelling for, for all types of games, not just hyper-casual, but all different pro genres to be running advertisements in the games in a really elegant way. I know I'm probably getting ahead of myself a little bit, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that as we get there. So let's 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 take a minute to talk about Facebook Audience Network, and and for those who might be unfamiliar, um, give us a, a short rundown on on what it is and and what your job entails there. Yeah, absolutely. So Audience Network um, provides game publishers, uh, developers with monetization solutions um, to help them generate revenue uh, in the game without sacrificing the players experience. Um, we have grown into uh, one of the largest gaming monetization platforms in the world. We recently shared that in 2019, we paid out multiple billions of dollars to developers. Um, it's it's an exciting place to be. And it's a, one of the huge advantages we have as Facebook is that we're bringing um, an incredible uh, amount of demand from our advertiser base to um, to our network, to our publishers. And so we deliver really high quality um, ads um, and, and we've been able to drive um, really high CPMs and value for our publishers as well. And so one of the ways to think about it is Facebook Audience Network is an extension <clears throat> of Facebook's owned and operated business um, out onto mobile apps. And we mm. primarily work with these days with gaming developers. It's, it's a big, big part of our business and it's a huge area of my focus. And so for me as the global gaming strategy lead, um, I work with our, our regional gaming leads to help our commercial teams um, and to support them in their work. We, we work hard to create uh, and evangelize strategies internally and key initiatives um, that help deliver outsized growth for audience network. Um, and we're trying, we're, we're working to help enable our, our sales teams um, and our XFN partners to really unlock like consequential value from these initiatives um, in the execution of their day-to-day -day work. So the way we think about it is our, our global strategy leads are, are here to provide additional resources uh, to make the, the job of our commercial sales org um, easier, better, faster, stronger. Um, and so we're, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about that. But I have a, a two-fold role. That's part of my role. And I'm also um, spending my time working here in North America with a team of amazing folks um, working to evangelize the merits of in-app advertising um, for traditionally IAP only publishers. We're gently, kindly, but very, you know, confidently reaching out to those folks um, and talking with them and sharing um, our perspective that it's, it's time. It's time for you to start thinking about a hybrid 
monetization model uh, because you're you're leaving money on the table and also your players um, really are missing out in your games because the sentiment around in-game ads um, is really really positive. So that's that's my role. That's audience network. That's kind of the areas I'm currently focused on. Nice. So let's talk a little bit about um, ads and 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 free to play because, as you said, you, you built an ad business in the very very early days um, of mobile gaming. And fast forward to today, these are sort of massive free to play is massive. Ad monetization is is big and on the rise. Um, why? And, and actually, I, I think it would be nice to look at this from, I mean, I'm asking you to answer from a specific perspective now. Um, you don't have to listen to me. But in looking at why you think um, or what has driven the success of the free-to-play model, how also does that connect with consumer preferences, uh, right? And, and how do, uh, what do consumers look for when they're, um, when they're in, engaging with a game entertainment product? So the first part of that question is what has contributed to the rise of the free to play business model? And then what was the second yes. part? Well, that how, what that has to do, it, it kind of, I, I liked what you said about um, Disney, right? Disney plus and how yeah. do you shift? It's cheaper, right? $30 um, yeah. and you get a whole year subscription and not just one, one night at the movies. Um, but shifting consumer um, behaviors is tough. And part of free yeah. to play, I think, is adapting to consumer behavior on mobile, but also potentially um, changing normal gamer behavior. Um, so, how yeah. do you? I'm, I'm sort of interested in how you see the success of, of free to play in the context of shifting consumer preferences. Yeah, no, it's a it's, it's a great question. Um, I think getting to let's start with why free to play has become successful. I think that when you go back, if we just rewind to 2010, it was this confluence of events. It was the it was the realization by the by companies like NGMoco that, hey, moving from consumer packaged goods, the EA, the console business model where we create and ship and just sell a bunch of units. Moving from that business model, or rather, just taking that business model and applying it to this this new mobile digital platform, simply that realization in that moment where they were chasing an opportunity. Because let's remember, smartphone adoption was exploding at this time. Mm -hmm. It was still early, but you could see the charts, and the charts were like hockey stick. It was going up and to the right. And if you were watching this space carefully, which... Neil Young, the CEO of Network, uh, of Network today, currently, who's a real thought leader in this space and someone who I just I really respect and follow. Um, he did an amazing chat recently about the potential for the, the mobile game space to become a trillion dollar business in the next decade. And when you stop to like wrap your brain around that and think about the fact that wow, it could become 10x what it is today in the you know in in, the, in this decade, um, that's really massive. But um, he, he's a so, so think about that first is that you're in that moment you're building this company you have this funding you have your investors behind you you're trying to be successful in this moment and your business model that you know historically has worked for you 
is not working and you have to try something new. You also know that companies like Zynga are finding success with free and you have to innovate and find that. So shipping free to play on mobile became this, it was like a necessity. We have to try this because it's, it's, it's being successful over here. We're going to make it happen on mobile as well. What ended up like really, I think accelerating free to play was not just the, um, well, first of all, I just want to make the point players and people in general, we, we really can't underestimate this love free stuff they just mm. love free um we we sometimes forget when we're in we're in this industry that you know 95 percent of the people who play mobile games with in-app purchases don't make purchases um sometimes it's it's more than that um and so players love free and um, if they can have access to something, a piece of entertainment that is free, um, they will they will do it and they will find it. Um, the we already I already mentioned this, but the other you know accelerator, the thing that really threw gasoline on the fire was the proliferation and just explosion of these platforms. You had the App Store, you had Google Play, Android adoption, uh, you know, uh, iPhone adoption the footprint of the overall industry just, just grew and the ease of use. You could create a single developer account for $99, publish all of your games. Um, and then you had companies like Facebook who were innovating on the user acquisition side and Iron Source and uh, others who are coming into the space and providing uh, performance marketing tools to help, you know, fund this new business model. And then you have a bunch of really, really smart people who can combine all those things together and run, um, you know, ROI positive marketing campaigns. And because at the core, it's a free product, you're able to scale that and, and really explode it globally. So at the core of this, free is the important component in my, in my opinion, but then the design and innovation um, around that and the real-time feedback and signal you get in that process as you're spending and growing and iterating um, has allowed, you know, free to play to grow from its infancy to what it is today. Um, and obviously, you know, there's, there's some headwinds coming in, in 2021 with all of that. And there's a lot of change that, that we're all going to go through. But what I, what I really am excited about um when it comes to all of this change is just what, what I think about is the incredible resilience and innovation that this space has already demonstrated and that will like, they will continue to, to demonstrate through even some, you know, some signal challenges coming up with iOS 14, for instance, does that answer your question? I feel like we got to part of it. Maybe not. I uh, I think it. I think it. Um, I think it does actually. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about um, some of the trends in yeah. both in gaming and in terms of of in game ads. What do you? What stands out to you um, in terms of of milestones that have really changed the way uh, in game ads work and their impact? You know, we have there's there's a lot. Um, if I think holistically. 
um, over the last decade, I think the single biggest innovation um, for in-game ads has been rewarded video as a format. Nothing like it existed before, um, either inside mobile, outside of mobile, online, um, you know, or elsewhere. And the format itself is a is a phenomenon. I mean, it's great for publishers. It's highly efficient um, in terms of um, the, the number of impressions you need to run, the CPMs you can drive. Players love it because they can use it to transact in the game uh, and acquire virtual currency. Advertisers love it uh, because it drives great outcomes for them. And also, you know, game designers love it because it's an opt-in experience they can incorporate into the overall uh, game design, um, which which makes it very unique as an ad format in that it is non non intrusive and very um, <clears throat> native and organic feeling, um, which is great. Um, there's also some really interesting you know stats that that we've seen. Audience Network um, recently commissioned a report um by by 2cv and some of the stats that we're seeing come out of that are are really compelling um one of the things let me just consult my notes here is that um we're seeing that like 32 percent of of gamers are seeing rewarded video as being like twice as useful as other formats um, which is which is really great. It's 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 amazing for people to be able to actually see like a particular format as being incredibly helpful to help them find um, to help them you know gain value from the experience. And then also um, playables are perceived um, as the most enjoyable ad type among thirty two percent of our players um, because it's they're inherently fun to play. Um, and the players can, you know, check out the game before they actually have to go and download them as well. So I, I think, well, I think I'd certainly agree with you on, on rewarded video. It's always been wild to me um, that this ad format hasn't caught on more in other app categories. Um, I mean, it, it yeah. makes sense. That it's, that it's really strong in gaming because there are those more developed in-app economies um, and it can work. But why, for example, has the New York Times not implemented it? If you told me, you know, Melissa, your 10 free articles this month have run out, uh, watch this ad and get access to one more free article. I would watch that ad in a heartbeat. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, I think reward of video is, a, is I mean, I'm definitely a fan. Um, yeah. I, I, another thing I think was that was in the, the 2CV report was also how gaming is becoming um, even more embedded in people's daily lives. Um, and I think this is yeah. also part of the, the, you know, not just the rise of free to play and, and mobile, but how of gaming in general, right? Today, everyone's a mobile gamer. Um, or, or nearly everyone. So how, how do you think we're going to see gaming companies innovate um, to capitalize on this sort of increasing um, embeddedness uh, and ubiquity of games? It's, it's, a, it's a great question. I think there's, there's some of the more obvious answers, like uh, some of the cooler innovations that, we, that I've seen um, have been the move to live services. Um, if you look at, um, you know, 
we, we were doing, you know, weekly events in mobile games. You know, I, I spent 10 years at mobile gaming studios and the concept of doing uh, live events, <clears throat> at least on a weekly basis, has been happening for, for quite some time. Um, but if you look at Fortnite and, you know, that's just as an example, I mean, they're, they're adding content to the game every single day. And um, it's really become like this living, breathing entertainment experience that is really just like so unlike anything else in the history of entertainment. Um, you know, it, it, so I can see there, there being a, a continued innovation around live services and um, all of that, of course, is geared towards um, driving up core KPIs, right? Um, time spent, um, monetization, retention, engagement, all of that. I think the entire industry um, is thinking about that a lot um, in terms of how can we keep people engaged and spending time in our apps um, and in our games. And I, and I love that. Uh, I think it's wonderful. I think it's great. But I, I also think that when you look at uh, more broadly, what's the, the, the innovations that are coming out of that, um, I think as we've gone through, you know, as a, as a, as a globe, this last several months with the pandemic, um, and we've been isolated more in our homes and separated from family. Um, I think it'll be more important for game developers to think about how we create social experiences where we can interact with one another. Um, Facebook has an amazing product. I know I'm, I'm sounding like um, a, a corporate shill, but the, the whole idea mm -hmm. behind the portal by Facebook is to, to bring remote presence with um, your friends and your family and we're using them for work as well and it makes my I get one one to one and a half hours babysitting out of my portal every night when my mother-in-law yeah. uh, who lives in in the states and and we don't um, she's on with my son every day she's reading him books they sing together and I just sort of have to sit there and make sure he doesn't like run into a table um, so yeah big big fan of the portal so you get it. Like, that's where I was going with this is that I, I do the same thing. I watch my, my youngest, who's eight, <clears throat> my oldest is 18. And I have two other teenagers in the middle. And then my, my youngest is eight. And it's, he's a really, he's our most extroverted child. And he's really sweet. And he's just loves his grandparents and his cousins and doesn't get to see him as often. You know, we, we don't, we don't spend a lot of time with them and he feels quite isolated but he gets to hop on the portal like when this all started i bought grandma and grandpa portal and shipped it off to them and yeah they get to play games together and read stories in this really cool interactive way um and i think that the more the games industry can do to bring those kinds of experiences to humanity to do good um, that's, that's a really positive, a positive thing. And I, and I think we will start to see more and more of that as well, as we head into 
this next decade. I think that there's going to be quite a bit of scrutiny and research that um, starts to put a little bit of a time spent as a um, KPI and engagement and the way we're designing today could have some downside negative um, impacts. If I look at my teenagers and how they play video games, I want options for my kids like the portal, that, that portal experience where they're playing a game with their friends. And I think interactive entertainment has a big role to play in that. Mm-hmm. So we've we've had, a, um, I think, an interesting time talking more broadly about the industry. But one of the things we did want to dive into was um, changes and shifts in how games approach monetization. Um, and I think it's, it's fair to say that over the last few years, there've been, we've seen an increasing number of gaming companies shift to hybrid monetization, um, something that combines both IPs and in-game ads. From your perspective, how significant has this shift been? You know, it's, it's been very, very significant. Um, we've seen, uh, you know, incredible trends directly with our, our, our managed publisher base, especially out of APAC. We've seen some of our, some of the largest IAP publishers in the world moving to a hybrid model, but the data proves it out as well. And, and recently in the, in the App Annie report that we commissioned um, with, with App Annie about ad monetization specifically, they found that 89% of top games worldwide had installed an advertising platform SDK. Um, which I, I was taken aback by that. It's, that's a very large uh, percentage of the overall ecosystem. And then more importantly, what their data proved out and what it showed was that games that had installed their first ad SDK grew in downloads and monthly active users. And the most important takeaway for me being a, you know, games industry veteran and having been in many conversations about some of the fears from studio heads and game designers around integrating ads is that this growth and the fact that the trend overall for the growth of this game in terms of downloads and monthly active users didn't decrease but overall increased um, suggests that incorporating ads did not negatively uh, affect the game. In fact, they did the opposite. And I think that's really interesting, um, really interesting data from our partnership with App Annie. Why do you think that is um, that we see sort of critical metrics actually positively impacted by integrating ads? You know, I think that when you, it's a tough question to, to answer because um, there is so much happening um, when these updates are going on. So when when SDKs are being added, right, um, a game studio is adding new content, new features. They may be, um, you know, commissioning new partnerships. Um, they are, uh, there's a number of things that are happening at that moment when an ad SDK uh, may be added into the mix. And so um, I think it would be disingenuous uh, for mm. Audience Network or Iron Source or anybody else in the ad monetization space to say to a game developer, just put ads in your game and your metrics are going to go up. That's that's not what, what this is telling me. What this is telling me is that there's a way to do this and to do it well in a way that you can actually um, increase the performance 
in your game, if, if that makes sense. Not to dodge your question, mm -hmm. but just to say that um, there is a, you can do ad monetization in your game and you can make more money with ads and you can have better retention, better engagement, more downloads, more players in your game. Um, you just need to know how to do it. And um, that's, that's what we're here. You know, we're here to help our publishers figure out exactly how to do that. I think it also reflects a um, an increasing level of sophistication in how people approach ad monetization. You know, it's not oh. slapping a banner ad on something. Um, in fact, it's an incredibly sort of complex, balanced game between kind of rewarded ads and and um, what we at least call system initiated ads or interstitials and banners. And and how do you? Huh, no pun intended. How do you play that game um, so <laughs> that you're you're carefully balancing user experience? Um, playtime and uh, and revenue. Um, and I think also that the technology has grown uh, with, I don't know if it's, you know, chicken and egg, but I think technology has also evolved to be, you know, incredibly sophisticated in terms of what you can, how you can slice and dice monetization performance um, and its impact on, on, on critical game metrics. And also then sort of um, taking it to the next level, A-B testing, um, more reporting, more data, um, so I, I think it's sort of probably a constellation of vital phenomena coming together. Yeah, I totally agree. And going back to our conversation about the movie theater and grabbing the popcorn and watching the trailers and that whole experience of uh, showing up for one thing, but also consuming other content that's, re that's relevant to you and that you also enjoy. I think good game design, good ad design. Um, when you do find, uh, you know, as, as more and more um, games and studios are shipping hybrid experiences that are done really, really well, it just increases that phenomenon of the consumer, the player, just say, this just, just, just feels right. This is a good experience. Mm. I'm here to play games and I'm seeing content that's relevant to me in the title, whether it's about other games um, or about other ads, other products and services that are relevant to me as a gamer. Mm -hmm. Do you think um, another interesting question that comes up uh, is how the hybrid weather um, or how the hybrid model stacks out across different genres? Um, is it a better fit for some than for others? I mean, we know that there are certain, um, you know, game categories that are heavily ad based um, and some that are much less uh, ad based, but when it comes to sort of uh, the hybrid model, um, which genres? Well, are there genres that it's really well suited for, um, and genres where which it isn't? Yeah, totally. I, I think that um, the data here was interesting to me and was actually quite delightful as someone who has been doing this for a long time and. Um, it, you know, casual games obviously are a great fit um, for ads. And um, in the App Annie report, um, we saw user sessions uh, one month after installing an ad SDK jumping an average of 190%, uh, just one month after um, integrating the, the ad SDK. Um, you know, casual games by definition are casual. Uh, so, you know, they're fun, they're low pressure, you hop in and out. They're simple to understand. And so ads just fit very, very well within this category. Um, 
79% of developers who use a combination of ads and IAP um, in casual games feel that rewarded video ads um, are their most successful format. Um, and this comes from the mobile games monetization research uh, by Walnut Unlimited that we, we commissioned earlier this year as well, which, which also makes sense. Rewarded video is such a flexible format and because of the opt-in nature, because it's leveraging the in-game economy and the player is getting uh, a reward, it's giving them the ability to transact in the game. Um, that means that you can really extend the ads experience quite easily outside of uh, a casual or hyper casual experience into like even a really um, hardcore type of game. One of the things that really stood out to me from the state of gaming app marketing um, 2019 edition report from apps flyer um, is that we we saw that look we know in in mid-core and hardcore games um, overall purchases are are declining um, a little bit but what was really surprising to us was that there was an incredibly high sentiment score for rewarded video among hardcore uh, game players, which tells me that, look, if you're, if you're an IAP only developer and you're making a mid-core to hardcore game and you don't have rewarded video integrated into that experience, um, you're leaving money on the table. And your players, the players who are participating in the economy of your uh, game and your experience are seeing ads in other t in other games and other experiences, and they really like rewarded video. And so, I think it's a great lesson to be learned for folks who are still on the sidelines that hardcore players love rewarded video, um, and that yes, the hybrid model um, is compatible across genres. Even though, hey, it might be easier to figure out for casual, or easier is probably the wrong the wrong word, um, but it makes more sense in, in, in a casual experience. But with rewarded video and playables um, that are opt-in, you should have an ad experience in in your mid-core, hardcore titles as well. Given given what you've just said, why do you think it is that there are there might still be some developers who are uh, on the fence about incorporating in-game ads, um, potentially particularly to height within the IAP um, space? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, listen, when you're making, if you're a studio head or designer or product manager, and you're making a free-to-play uh, mobile game experience, you know, you, you're optimizing around time spent and you're optimizing around... Um, that, that free to play, that IAP purchase moment, that's what all of the, the, the entire focus of your user acquisition um, efforts, that's where that is, you know, you're, you're spending all of your effort around not just getting players in the game, but people who are going to pay money uh, in your title. And I think because over the last decade, as free to play has um, accelerated as, um, as a format, as a, as a type of monetization model in games, that in-app purchase has become, with tools like Facebook for user acquisition and IronSource and all of these other 
uh, ad networks who are helping uh, marketers optimize for purchasers, for acquiring purchasers, that has become the sole focus and therefore like this holy grail and sacred entity within these studios. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I don't want to say anxiety, but there is just a lot of um, respect and care that's given to making sure that that, uh, that experience is protected. And so whenever a conversation is brought up, that's like, Hey, let's introduce some other way for our players to transact. Questions come up from the folks who are are making these games, which are things like, well, how is this going to impact retention? Like if I bring ads into the game and I don't do it the right way, if I churn out, you know, players that I potentially could have monetized via in-app purchase, that can be, you know, potentially a, a, a red flag for some and a concern. Um, and then others are worried about the fact that, uh, you know, rewarded video as a way to monetize in a game can also cannibalize in-app purchase as well. And I will say that, you know, if you don't do this correctly, and there are best practices, we have best practices. We, you know, if you have questions about how to do this the right way to, to where it's incremental to your in-app purchase revenue, um, we can help with that. But you know, what we've seen is the data just proves that some of these common myths and concerns around adding um, ads into a game that has an IAP only experience are really just that they're myths. And um, there's plenty of resources, data, case studies, we have them, our partners have them. Uh, if you have questions in the industry, you can talk to your colleagues about their, their success. At this point, as we're heading into, especially into 2021, with this you know, just kind of a disruptive season in mobile games, with some of the changes coming in iOS 14, um, it's, a, it's an important time for the people who are still on the sidelines with rewarded videos, especially to get in the game. This is an easy way, like it's an easy win. It's all documented. We have all of the case studies. We have all of the best practices. You can add 10%. We found, it's hard to say exactly how much you can make, but we have partners <laughs> who have made about 10%, about 10 right, of, of their IAP revenue um, with by running ads. And so, you know, there's, there's ways for you to mitigate some of the changes that are coming. Um, and I think that looking, taking a hard look at rewarded video and ads in general is a way to do that. I think um, another one of the other big shifts, and, and actually I'm, I'm sort of curious about this because it's less, um, from a technology standpoint, it's less immediately understandable from a, a user experience perspective. But one of the other big shifts that we've seen uh, recently has been um, the rise and I would say steady adoption um, of in-app bidding. I mean, we've certainly seen a huge growth uh, recently, but it did take the industry some time to, to sort of get on the bandwagon. Um, how have you guys seen uh, things change at, at Facebook Audience Network? Um, is adoption speeding up? Um, and if so, why? Yeah, when I joined <clears throat> Facebook and Audience Network in January of 2019, there had been, you know, a year and a half plus investment in 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 at bidding that had already been um, underway. It's been a major initiative of ours for a long time. And 
for audience network, you know, we truly believe that bidding creates a more fair, open and efficient ad ecosystem. And it's something we're really excited about. Um, and our partners are too, including Iron Source. We're so excited to have all of you as part of our bidding partner program. Um, but to answer your question, the last year alone, the number of apps using bidding with Facebook Audience Network is seven times bigger. Um, and among our top 10 largest publishers using Audience Network to monetize, the majority are now using bidding. And so when we talk about bidding, um, this is a huge initiative for us. It's a very, very big, uh, we, we think it's the future um, of, of mobile ad monetization and we're wholly committed to it. And, and I'll try to explain why. I think there's, this is really about our publishers um, and there's a couple of things that we think about when it comes to the benefits for our publishers. Um, the, the first one is to maximize, um, maximize revenue. The legacy methodology for, for yield management, managing the, the you know, efficiency of your inventory and ensuring you're making the most money via the waterfall system is, is just outdated. Um, in our report, The New Era in Monetization, several of the publishers we spoke to experienced substantial revenue growth when switching to bidding from waterfall, recording between 13 and 27% uplift in average revenue per daily active user. In fact, um, Game Insight, one of our earliest adopters of bidding, um, historically did not generate a significant amount of revenue from ads, um, but bidding helped Game Insight increase their ARP DAO uh, and raise the amount that ads contributed to their overall revenue. Uh, and due to that, Game Insight now runs more than 95% of their inventory on bidding. So maximizing revenue, and this is a long-winded answer, but it's an important topic. <laughs> maximizing revenue is a, is a very important component of why bidding is important to publishers. But then the, there's another component that is also really important to consider, and that's improving operational efficiency. We have publishers who have, you know, entire teams that are spending so much of their time simply managing waterfall optimization to ensure they're making the most money from their ads in, you know, 40 different geos, different ad formats and different partners and the complexity that's involved in that really gets uh, unwieldy and very difficult to manage and with bidding, the automation helps you increase your operational efficiency so your team can focus on driving more impact for your business. Um, but you know, focusing on things like having more time to optimize um, the design of the ad experience in the game, uh, more freedom to integrate new demand partners easily uh, and more resources to focus on user acquisition or just some ideas of the ways that uh, your ad monetization teams can be uh, using this time. Another, another way that, you know, these teams who are currently focused on monetizing waterfalls can be uh, using their time, especially in larger studios, is they could be taking all the best practices and the, and the insights that we talked about with hybrid monetization to studios internally 
that may not be using ads yet. And they can more closely partner with those studios to help them move from IAP only to hybrid. Um, so that's that's an important part of operational efficiency as well. And just to mention a couple of quick case studies, um, we've seen publishers like 111% out of South Korea free up up to 50% of their ad ops time after adopting bidding, which which is just I mean that's phenomenal. Um, Pixel Federation also was able to save 30% more time with app bidding, allowing them to spend more time and money driving user acquisition. So I think that when you think about the potential here to take um, an industry that relies a lot on, you know, very much on, um, on, on manual optimization and to fully automate that to ensure that publishers are getting the most money for each impression, uh, via technology is a really compelling um, thing that we all should be paying attention to. I think, uh, and this connects a little bit to what I said earlier about um, how savvy and sophisticated uh, game companies are and how they handle monetization today. I think it's clear to the savvy game developer or monetization guy or girl uh, that um, bidding makes a lot of sense. The operational savings are wonderful. The maximization of revenue is also great. They're familiar with the technology. Great. How I'm, what I'm really curious about is how familiar your average kind of long tail indie developer is with in-app bidding. How familiar are they with monetization waterfalls for that matter? And whether we're going to see a, um, an, a wave of adoption of in-app bidding by um, quote unquote, the, the long tail developer community. Yeah, oh, that's such a great question. Yes, I do think so. I absolutely think that we will see. Um, I, I think that bidding and the automation it represents, the simplicity, um, it, it just makes ad monetization that much easier to, to do. Um, you know, if you're thinking about ad monetization for the first time, um, you, as a game studio, you just want to be thinking about design. You want to be thinking about how do I integrate this experience into my game? Not you know, what are the, you know, what are the, what's the checklist of things that I'm going to have to do on a daily basis and the dashboards that I'm going to have to log into uh, in order to make sure that I'm making the most money from, from the ads that I'm running. And so bidding addresses so much of that. I would also say that bidding actually really helps speed up adoption, not just from um, the long tail, but also from the head of market where, you know, if, if it's the first time you are, if you're an IP only publisher and this is your first time, um, you know, looking at ad monetization, bringing ad monetization into your title, um, the automation of in-app bidding is very compelling to you because again, you can focus on the design. You don't have to, you don't have to build out this operational, um, you know, piece that is, you know, super demanding, but it gives you the flexibility um, to, to do that. And I think that it's probably important to mention too, since while we're on the topic of bidding, we announced that due to upcoming iOS 14 updates, we mentioned, you know, earlier the disruption that's coming 
2021. Um, we, we believe in bidding so much that the audience network is going to become a bid, bidding only ad network in Q2 2021 for iOS apps specifically. Um, and we're actually going to move away from supporting waterfall ad mediation altogether. So we're, we're doubling down on this. Um, it's a disruptive season. We, we firmly believe um, that the automation um, around in-app bidding um, will give our publishers a strategic advantage as they navigate some of the uncertainty that's coming um, in you know, early 2021. Um, as you know, we'll see what Apple ends up doing with IDFA. Um, for right now, we're all in a wait and see mode, but um, we are we are moving forward uh, with bidding by by moving the whole network to it in 2021. And for iOS specifically, we're doing that in Q2. Mm-hmm. I think um, what you said is is right. the 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 appeal is not necessarily. Um, this is a new way to manage your, I mean, not even a new way to manage, you don't have to manage your waterfall anymore uh, for for a, a long tail developer. It's, you don't really have to do very much for your monetization at all. Um, you know, you switch this on, the, the, the platform or the technology does everything for you and you can rest assured you're getting the, the maximum, um, the maximum revenue for your, for your inventory. Um, yeah. It's, it's, I'm, I ask because it's now something which for the, I mean, for at least for now, um, and and following our, our partnership with you guys, we are now the the only platform that offers bidding for you know without need for approval or um, you know or a, a wait and see mentality for any right. developer of any size. Um, so it's sort of one not okay. It's not really one click bidding, but it's essentially instant access to bidding. Right. Um, and and I think for for those developers, it's it's not really about. Um, necessarily saving on on manual overhead that they were currently spending on managing managing the monetization it's start doing ad monetization at the highest level of um sort of technological superiority without actually needing to put in very much uh, manual effort yourself um, yeah so exciting I, times ahead yeah I, it, it is i totally agree and that's so so great that you all are doing that um you know my my personal opinion and take is that 2021 um, is going to be a disruptive time and there's going to be a lot of experimentation Um, and a lot of you know I think a a lot of publishers who have been living in a world where they have um, you know three or four games uh, on you know iOS and Android and they're doing IAP only um, are starting to do some soul searching about that. They're thinking, wow, you know, if changes like the ones that Apple is signaling are coming, I need to be thinking more diligently about alternative revenue streams. Um, I need to be thinking about how I'm structuring my overall business. And I think it's just for me, and, you know, I'm biased obviously, um, because of, of what I do and how I see the world. Um, but I think we're going to see the growth of ad monetization and publishers moving to a hybrid model, which is already 
grown, you know, astronomically over the last couple of years, we're going to see that continue to accelerate um, in the in the first half of next year as as publishers, as developers um, get ready for the changes that are coming. Yeah. Um, it's going to be interesting. Uh, Nate, thank you. Thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Um, it's been quite wide ranging and very interesting. Uh, and to everyone else, thank you as always for listening. My pleasure. Thanks, Melissa. Have a good day.